0: If you'll permit me for just a couple of moments here, I'd like to take a a minute before we jump into our sermon and just give a brief update on our process in searching for a worship pastor. So just to bring you up to speed, before we were leading up to our annual business meeting back in December, we had a number of conversations and then uh, approving, putting into the budget and approving a, a search for a worship pastor. And so just wanna be faithful Uh, to keep good communication and to just give you a brief update here on where we stand with this. On Thursday of this last week, the elders and the worship team met together. The purpose of this meeting was to ensure that we're all unified as we move forward in this process. I'm sure this will be a a series of a number of meetings together as we do this, but making sure that we're unified as we move forward And we really outlined the searching for a worship pastor in two phases. And so being in phase one, we would say phase one is establishing a biblical foundation for what we believe and what we practice as corporate gathering, as we corporately worship. So we talked through six convictions of what we believe uh, corporate worship is to be. And the purpose of it, we talked about things like the elements of it, what, what, is, what is made up in corporate worship, what is the purpose of it, who gathers, and what do we do as we gather. Those were some of the topics, uh, the categories that we talked about. You might ask the question, well, why, why do this? Doesn't this seem pretty elementary? But it makes no sense for us to go on a search and bring in a worship pastor who either doesn't know what we believe or would come in and just simply want us to and expect us to adopt uh, their beliefs. And so we really have to start at that foundation of asking the question, what is corporate worship? What are we doing? And how are we to gather together? And then from that foundation, move forward. Having settled that, and we hope to do this soon, we would move into phase two. That would be putting together a job description and duties of a worship pastor, and then moving forward with an active search. So our immediate next steps would be these. We will be, the elders, will be meeting again this coming week with the worship team, and we're going to try to have these meetings and and do that phase one process, if you will, as expedient as we can. And then in the near future, we would like to present a sermon series. Not quite sure how many weeks that would be, two, three, four, uh, as many as it would take for us to bring Uh, These convictions of what a corporate worship service is to be and do, to bring that to us as an entire body. So we think through this, have a solid foundation, again, be unified together, know what God's word says about our corporate gathering, and then after that, we'll see where the Lord leads in our search. We recognize that finding a worship pastor could be like finding a needle in a haystack. We also know, though, that the Lord can find and bring us needles. So we are excited to pray, to ask the Lord for his leading, and um, we also are open to the fact that God may just be using this entire exercise as a means to grow us, as a means to push us to the word, to dig in and be uh, founded and fixed in our convictions. So it may go that far and no more, we don't know, but we want to go where the Lord leads. We want to step where the Lord steps. And so the final thing I want to say is this, is just an invitation to all of you to join us in prayer for this process, to join us in prayer, uh, that as we solidify these convictions of corporate worship, as we meet together, the, the leadership, the elders, and the worship team, that we would be unified in moving forward, and then collectively as a congregation as well. So please pray with us and stay tuned for our next update. We hope to bring you in just a short time. We're in Acts chapter 10. We are in an exciting and very unusual and very unique circumstance and situation we left off last week. With kind of this unfolding of a very unique situation. And I don't know that most of us can even understand the gravity of what is taking place and the gravity of what is going on in Acts chapter 10. You have a Jew, the Apostle Peter. He has entered a Gentile's house, a man by the name of Cornelius, and the intention of that meeting is to eat and fellowship together. This is extremely unusual in Scripture, especially at this point in God's unfolding of His grace. In fact, the next time that Peter goes to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11, we'll be there in a couple of weeks, but the next time he goes, he he takes some flack for doing this very thing. They said, why did you go to a Gentile's house to eat with them? Even as Peter's entering the home of Cornelius, he tells him how it was not permitted for Jews to associate with Gentiles like this. So it's a very unusual and very unique situation we're right in the middle of. We're asking, what does the Lord have to teach us in all of this? Now, I do think that the commentator Derek Thomas has a point that some Jews were able to understand the laws of distinction that we talked about last Sunday, these laws of distinction that made them separated from the Gentiles, but they still had a, a, a thought and an idea of human decency towards the Gentiles. That was true for some of the Jews. However, many of them did not have that thought, and in fact, they would refer to the Gentiles as dogs or pigs or worse. So, You can imagine how some of those distinctions that God had put into the lifestyle and the daily living of the Jewish people, they allowed those to become an opportunity or an occasion for disdain. It wasn't just a distinction, it was a disdain towards the Gentiles. In fact, I've got a picture here. Uh, This is a sign that I'll be showing you that is posted uh, in a neighborhood in Jerusalem. So this is modern day. But this would just be one uh, small sampling of maybe some of the Jewish mindset towards Gentiles. It's a sign that says, groups passing through our neighborhood, you severely offend the residents. Please stop this. This is kind of a semi-veiled but not so subtle warning sign to essentially say this. Gentiles, your life, your dress, your conversation your very presence offends us, stay out of our neighborhood. It's essentially a a non-welcoming sign, right? That's the opposite of a welcoming sign. So this just gives us a little sample even today of some of the sentiment that still churns within the heart of some Jews. As we learned last Sunday, some of those Old Testament laws, like the dietary ones we looked at, were given by God in order to make a visual distinction and to show that God is separated from the common, the profane, the unholy. That in his holiness, he is separate from all of these things. Ah, but now we come to Acts chapter 10. And Peter has been given a vision by God to enter this Gentile's home and to share a message with him. Before we go any further, I just want us to think about this man whose home Peter is entering by the name of Cornelius, and, and let's get to know him a little bit better before we get in to our text this morning. His name is Cornelius. He was a Roman officer, a centurion, and I've got a picture here of um, a modern-day depiction of as best as we can tell through archaeology and through writings what the outfit of Cornelius would have looked like as a Roman centurion. That means he would have been in charge of up to about a hundred Roman soldiers under his command. We saw last week that he's spoken very well of in terms of his reputation and his spirituality. In chapter 10, verse 2, he was described as a devout man, very devoted. It was described that he fears God. It was described that he is generous with the poor and that he prays continually. In verse 22 of Acts chapter 10, we're told again that Cornelius was upright in character and he was well spoken of by the Jewish community. These are all commendable things. These are all great and wonderful things. However, we learned that Cornelius was also very misguided in his theology of worship. And this next picture I'll show you, this is an old tapestry that probably hung on a wall. um, But it was depicting the scene, if you can see this, where Cornelius, we're told in Scripture, he fell to the ground and began worshiping Peter. So very misguided in his theology of worship. It was an important question, certainly for us to answer, as we take all that Scripture is saying about Cornelius, and we would ask this question, is he a true believer? He prays, he gives alms, his good reputation. Is he a true believer? What most Bible scholars conclude, and I would agree with them here, that, that the term God-fearer, when it is used for a Gentile, it refers to a person who is attracted to the Jewish faith. They're interested in it. Uh, They're curious of it. They may even practice or adhere to some of the Jewish laws, but they were not fully committed to becoming a proselyte, which is uh, the understanding the way of a person being fully in, circumcised, and becoming part of the Jewish community. And Cornelius had not done that, He was not following the Torah as an essential component of life. And so for Cornelius here, we can say this. Scripture commends his piety and the fact that he followed some Jewish practices, but he had not fully committed, he had not fully converted to Judaism, and so he did not belong to the community of God's people. He was not of the covenant people. Now, back to our situation that's unfolding in the home of Cornelius. Now I have one last uh, little visual picture here, maybe just to give us a context. Here's one of an illustration of Peter addressing the household of Cornelius. This is where we left off last week. Peter enters, Cornelius welcomes him in. Peter is going to stand up and speak. This is the point which we left off last Sunday. Cornelius has brought his relatives and his close friends in. And it says he's ready to hear all that the Lord wants to say through Peter. Man, could, could you ask for a more eager, ready, and willing person? Like, this is the audience. Tell us everything God has for us to hear. This is just going to be a very fruitful and ripe exchange. It's going to be interesting for us. Peter now at this point stands up and he delivers a sermon in the house of Cornelius and I think what we will find interesting is what Peter delivers. And just as a hint, Cornelius's good works and his valiant effort at religion, even his interest to kind of put a foot towards it, it was not enough. Peter is going to tell Cornelius it's all about Jesus. It's all about his righteousness. It's about his sacrifice on the cross. Even though you are a morally upright person, you're spoken well of in your reputation, it's not enough. You must know of Jesus. He is the way to forgiveness. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So I've titled this morning's message, Jesus, salvation by no other name. Salvation by no other name. If this phrase sounds familiar, it's because Peter, Peter has already preached that very phrase back in Acts chapter 4, and he preached it to the Jews. So he preaches a message of Jesus to the Jews, and he preaches a message of Jesus to the Gentiles. And his message is the same throughout. There is salvation of your sins, forgiveness of your sins, by no other name except Jesus. Why is salvation through Jesus and only through Jesus? Now we turn to Peter's sermon this morning that he delivers in the home of Cornelius. And we're going we're gonna to see there's five reasons why he gives that it is Jesus and only Jesus, and through Jesus that salvation comes Look with me in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. We'll see here that Jesus, it is only through him because he and he alone was uniquely sent as God's living message. Acts 10 verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and he said, "'Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, "'but in every nation, anyone who fears him "'and does what is right is acceptable to him.'" For the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Peter begins this message by talking about the character and the nature of God. Um, God had been teaching and showing Peter that he is impartial to nations and races. God does not show favoritism and instead accepts people from every nation. Uh, The author and pastor John Stott makes the point that the emphasis here is that Cornelius is a Gentile. His nationality, though, was acceptable to God so that he did not have to become a Jew in order to receive salvation. God is not indifferent of spiritual beliefs, but this passage is showing us this morning that he is indifferent of nations. It makes no difference. There's no distinction here. This is the lesson that Peter learned, and he was sharing this now with Cornelius. God had showed him he shows no partiality. So after pointing out that being a Gentile was no barrier to salvation, Peter then is going to speak the message that Christ brought to the earth. God sent a message from above. He didn't do it in pen and paper. He didn't align the stars with some kind of message to spell something out. God sent a living word, a living message, and this living word was Jesus Christ. We know from John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and this word became flesh, and this is the living message of God sent to earth in the person of Jesus. Jesus was sent from heaven as a living message. And what was that message? We're told here, it was a message of peace. It was a message of peace. God's design and God's desire was reconciliation with sinful man and holy God and with sinful man and his fellow man, his neighbors, all of this peace and reconciliation would come through Jesus Christ. Maybe we could just say it this way. Through Jesus, brothers and sisters, we are able to experience the full joy of relationships. Jesus brings peace so that we might experience the full measure of relationship with God and the full measure of joy in our relationship with others. Jesus Christ alone does this. So He is uniquely sent as God's living message, and that message is a message of peace. Secondly, as we read on in verses 37 to 38, we see that Jesus also was uniquely anointed with power, power to do the miracles that he did, power to cast out the demons he did. He was uniquely given and anointed with power. Uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Peter acknowledges that the news of Jesus' ministry was known all throughout this region, It even spread to the Gentile communities. The public ministry of Jesus uh, started in Galilee, the Galilee area. That was about 60 miles from where Cornelius is living in Caesarea at this point. So 60 miles for these news uh, stories to travel was, was nothing in the ancient world. It would have easily reached those areas. The main point here, though, is that God himself had set Jesus apart and had empowered him with the Holy Spirit for ministry. And here again is another instance that we have compacted in these few verses of a triune God working together in perfect harmony and in perfect fellowship to bring salvation to sinners on earth. We have here God the Father, present being the architect, sending and anointing Jesus to deliver the message of salvation and peace. We have God the Son in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the sent one who accomplishes this work of salvation for mankind through his obedient life and death and burial and resurrection. We also have here God the Holy Spirit, He is the anointing power through which Jesus carried out his ministry. And so here we have present the entire triune God in perfect unity and in harmony carrying out this work. Some people balk at the thought of the Trinity because the word itself is not present in Scripture. But we have all of it present right here. We have three members perfect, co-equal, co-eternal, three perfect members of the Godhead in perfect unison, working towards the salvation of sinners for the glory of God and for our eternal good. And here we have all of them. We notice that all of them working together were doing this. It was good in verse 38. Jesus was healing, he was delivering, and it gave people freedom, The word and the message was peace. The work that was done was good. So Jesus Christ comes down and everywhere he goes, he works good. And every message he preaches is a message of peace. Well, what a tremendous thought. The goodness of God displayed in the person of Christ. It is only through his name We look at a third point in our passage this morning. It is for this reason. Jesus was then uniquely raised to life. He was uniquely sent by God. He was uniquely anointed with power by the Holy Spirit. He is now uniquely raised to life, as we see in verses 39 to 41. We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. And here we have Peter again proclaiming the Lord's death. We'll get back to that in just a moment. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Peter's giving here a personal testimony that he himself was an eyewitness to the miracles and ministries of Jesus. This was not just something that came to him that he heard. He observed them. He watched them. He was an eyewitness. These weren't just stories. He observed and verified these things with his eyes. But then in verse 39, we're told, the author of life was killed. This Jesus, yes, this one sent by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, was put to death. Earlier, Peter had said the author of life was killed. But here we have him described as they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. And so Peter is mentioning the specific fashion, the specific way in which he was killed. He was hung on a tree. And, And this is no accident that Peter would mention it this way. Because back in Deuteronomy chapter 31, it was said that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Cursed is anyone who can be claimed by neither earth nor heaven, but is suspended in between. Cursed is that one. And yet this was for a purpose that Peter mentioned this, as he later wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus bore our sins in his body on that tree. It was a death of cursing. It was a death of bearing of sin. It was a death that brought us life. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. It was an atoning death. Christ hung on a tree, and in doing so, he bore the curse. He bore the judgment of God for us and for our sins. What a wonderful death he gave up. What a wonderful thing he did for us to bear those things on his shoulders. But he did not remain in the grave. God raised him up on the third day, we're told. And this was a unique resurrection. This was not like Dorcas, who we saw resuscitated back to life. A chapter ago, or any of the other people in the New Testament that we were told were brought back to life, this one was unique. The resurrection of Jesus validated his work of salvation and acted as a living testimony that he was God's sent one. He was the Messiah. He was the one who would bring peace and salvation. Peter preaches all that Jesus was, all that Jesus had done, and now as we get close to the end of our text here this morning, we see that, pre- that Peter is going to preach who Jesus is. Not in the past tense, who he remains in the present tense, who Jesus is in his living person. Look with me at verse 42. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Jesus is exclusively appointed as judge of all people. What a fascinating verse. What a powerful truth this is, that it is a duty of Peter to preach this unique role and this unique function of Jesus as judge That he has been appointed as judge of all the living and all the dead. God the Father has given Jesus the authority to execute judgment over all people. This is a powerful truth. It's a truth that runs against the grain of who we are as people. It's a truth that runs against the grain of our human nature. We want to think that we are the judge of our own lives. We want to think that we are the judge of our moral character. And usually what we end up doing is comparing ourselves to others when we don't even live up to our own standard. Well, I'm certainly not as bad as this person. I haven't done that too many times or whatever. And we get in a comparison game. That is not what Scripture says. We are not the judge of our souls. Jesus is. Jesus is the judge. This means that all judgments of a person's life go through Jesus. Uniquely him. This verse reminds us of Hebrews 9.27 that says it's appointed unto man once to die and after that, the judgment. That this judgment goes through Jesus Christ. No matter if you've lived a good life, if you've had a good reputation, if you've given money to the poor, and if you pray just as Cornelius had done all of those things, All souls will pass through the judgment of Jesus who is the appointed judge. That's a sobering thought. It's a fearful thought. But scripture does not leave us in our fear because we end today on a promising verse. And we end today on a promising truth that the very judge of our souls, is also the very one who pardons us of our sins. Look with me at our final verse, verse 42. This is the fifth reason that salvation is and can only be through the name of Jesus. He is exclusively the way to forgiveness. Verse 43 says this, to him, all the prophets bear witness That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Long before Peter and the other apostles began testifying of salvation through the Messiah, the Old Testament prophets bore witness to this. That's what the beginning of verse 43 says. And the second half of the verse, everyone then who believes in this Jesus, the Jesus who was uniquely sent by God, the Jesus who was uniquely anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Jesus who was uniquely raised from the dead. The Jesus who was appointed as judge. Those who believe on this Jesus have their sins wiped out. Sins forgiven. Pardoned. That by no means means that Christians are somehow innocent of sin. We are lawbreakers. But we can have our sins Wiped away because of Jesus Christ and who He is. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, not by works of goodness that we can conjure up, but through Scripture tells us His name, His obedience, His perfection, His appointment, His work, His life, His death, His resurrection we are forgiven based on the credentials of Jesus Christ. And these two verses here in verses 42 and 43, they form such exclusive truths. You know, if Cornelius had been fine just the way he was, Peter would not have found it necessary to proclaim salvation through the judge, Jesus Christ. But Cornelius was not fine the way he was. Neither am I, and neither are you. We need forgiveness, and it comes only through the one who judges our souls. The very one who judges is also the very one who justifies. As judge, Jesus bore our punishment, and he pardons the offender. As we close this passage today, I just hope that the weight of this message speaks to us. The most upright Gentile, Cornelius, is not good enough to stand before the judge on his own. He must have the pardon of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of his sins. The most dedicated Jew is not righteous enough to forgive his own sins. We must have Jesus Christ to wipe his sins away through his sacrifice on the cross. No human on earth is above the need for Jesus. He is God's appointed judge and deliverer for forgiveness. You will pass the judge's verdict and receive the judge's forgiveness only by believing on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. There is salvation in no other name under heaven by which sinners can be saved. But here's the thing, he saves. He's the judge of our souls. He's the pardoner of our sins. If we will believe in him. Next week, we'll learn how Peter is interrupted in his sermon, but it's probably not by anyone who you would think would interrupt him. We'll pick this passage up next Sunday. Will you close with me in prayer? Father, we find ourselves in the position of Cornelius. No doubt, many of us thinking that we have some goodness in ourselves, some righteousness of our own. But Lord, we're being taught today from your word that none of those things matter as we stand before the judge of our souls when perfection is the standard. So Lord, might you teach us today, remind us today that Christ alone is our hope, Christ and him alone is our salvation and it is through Christ only that our sins might be forgiven as he is the perfect judge of our souls. Lord, if there be anybody here today who doesn't know Christ as their savior, might you take your word with your power and apply this gospel message to their souls that they might cry out and call to Jesus for forgiveness and have pardon and peace with you forevermore. We thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.